0: The title for our sermon this morning is A Gracious Genealogy Bearing Good News. You know, we all like it when a movie or a book has a happy ending. It feels right, it feels appropriate. Uh, Some happy endings are very predictable. If you've ever been about halfway through a movie or a book and you go, I know how this is going to end. Uh, Whereas some other endings are less predictable. Now as we come to toward the end of Genesis chapter 11, we actually approach the end of the first stage of history. It's known as the primeval era, and the next stage is referred to as the patriarchal era. And at the close of this first stage, things are not looking great. There has been a global flood due to mankind's wickedness that has exterminated the population, excluding Family of Noah, consisting of eight. But even after that global cleansing, it didn't take long for the wickedness of man to be pervasive again and for the Lord to take action yet again. Now, the Tower of Babel unfolded around a hundred years after the flood, so not that long. So, Genesis 11 and the Tower Saga is yet another dark point in the history of humanity mankind just keeps messing it up but in the deep darkness there is some light and it comes in the form of a genealogy and perhaps that's surprising to you we don't normally associate lists of hard to pronounce names as a happy and gracious end to a sad account we don't typically view a genealogy as light shining into darkness, but it's exactly what this genealogy does. Because without it, it would be a very dark and depressive scene. You know what's very interesting is that it follows the Tower of Babel. And this is the genealogy of Abram. Okay, here's the conclusion. Abram was born. 290 to 320 years after the flood so that's 190 to 220 years after Babel so what we have is around about a 200 year period and all that the Bible records of that time is this genealogy now I want you to think about that there's an awful lot that's unfolding during this 200 year period okay all the people have just been dispersed at the Tower of Babel. So there's tribes migrating, cultures developing, new discoveries, new locations, new religions, new cities, new ways of life and yet there's a striking silence. None of that is reported. All that the Holy Spirit includes is this genealogy and initially it may seem surprising but what we see is that there's some gracious good news to be found in it. And at the end, I hope that makes perfect sense to you. So in this sermon, what we're going to do is to delve into this genealogy with the goal of discovering the good news that's found within it. We're going to discover the light that it shines into a very dark time. The approach is simple. I'd like to draw out seven observations From this genealogy that will help us to understand it and then it will bring us to a point where we see the light it shines and the good news it communicates so observation number one Uh, this is a new toledot if you remember that's how i began the last sermon but it's not the same sermon i promise Um, i did think about copying and pasting the same thing and see if you remember what i said last time but i changed it slightly Uh, You know, the Toledot that commenced uh, in chapter 10, the table of nations, it goes up to verse 9 of chapter 11. You'll notice verse 10, uh, it commences, these are the generations of Shem. So this is what we refer to as the Toledot, and there are at least 10 in the book of Genesis. And as we've mentioned, this tells us it's a new section. We could say it's a new chapter in the story. And what's particularly interesting about this is that it's quite short because if you look down to verse 27 it says there now these are the generations of terror so verses 10 to 26 they form one tolodot observation number two it shares similarities with other genealogies This list that we have recorded here is very similar to what we saw in Genesis chapter 5. And this is what's known as a linear genealogy. What that means is it goes from father to son with very little information except for some ages. And the giving of ages and how long they lived is important because that seems to argue that that these lists of names do not have time gaps in between them so there are no skipped generations and that that is a debated point among scholars but i think it's best to say that there are no skipped generations i think that view is more consistent with how the text is written now it's interesting that in genesis chapter 5 it traces the line from adam to noah and there are 10 generations and then in this genealogy, it traces the line from Shem to Abraham, which is also 10 generations. And when we put that together, there are 20 generations from Adam to Abraham. Now, another striking similarity with the genealogy in Genesis 5 is that it concludes with what's called a segmented genealogy of Noah. Okay, it lists his three sons. So verse 32 of chapter 5 It says, and Noah was 500 years old, and Noah beget Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So it's not just one son. It lists all three. Now I want you to look at how the genealogy concludes here in chapter 11, verse 26. It says, and Terah lived 70 years and beget Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So there's this striking similarity. And what's interesting is that it seems that neither sham or abram were the firstborn and yet they're listed first in these genealogies what that tells us is that they're significant figures it's showing us their prominent position and the fact that they were the elect descendant despite not being the firstborn so there are some similarities but there are also a couple of differences and i'd like to point out just one The genealogy in chapter 5, it says throughout it, and he died. We read that of every generation in Genesis 5, except for Enoch, who we know to be raptured. And it doesn't say it of Noah, because Noah is about to take center stage. But it's interesting that eight times it says, and he died. But you'll notice that's not included in this genealogy in Genesis 11. Now, this doesn't mean that they didn't die, but perhaps it's communicating two things and they're both related. Okay, number one, it's a poetic device to get us to Abraham as quickly as possible okay, because he will take center stage. And secondly, it's meant to help us see that this is a line of hope. Things are bad. Okay, things are really bad. Mankind has made a big mess, but God ensures that there's hope. God's plans, God's purposes are not frustrated by man's wickedness. And the era of Abraham that this genealogy introduces brought with it a sense of optimism. So that's observation two, the similarities with the previous genealogy. Observation three, we see the irony of Shem. The line of Shem is again the focus of our text. That's clear in verse 10. It says, these are the generations of Shem. And then it goes through the family line now if you remember we also saw the line of sham in the table of nations but there it was it traced the line of a different son so the genealogy before us is basically the same up until peleg and if we look at the table of nations his brother was Joktan, and the table of nations it traces the line of Joktan. okay that's the non-messianic line Joktan had 13 sons But this genealogy here, it traces the line of Peleg. And we see this in verses 17 to 19. But it is this son of Noah, it's Shem that becomes the center of attention. Why? Well, it's because it was through this line that Messiah would eventually come. And that's in harmony with the blessings that Noah pronounced upon his sons back in chapter 9. But what's particularly interesting and rather ironic is that the name Shem actually means name. So as I thought about that, that must have been the dad who named him. Mrs. Noah, what should we name our son? Let's name him name. I was like, yeah, well done, Noah. You know, all jokes aside, names do mean something in the Bible. And they would often be prophetic, either about one's character or some significant events that would unfold. And the irony here is that at Babel, if you remember last week, they were trying to make a name for themselves. Okay, that, that's the heart of rebellion, more concerned about your name than the name of the Lord. Okay, in verse 4, it says, let us make a name. The word name here is the Hebrew word sham. Literally, let us make a sham. The point is, the people didn't need to secure a name for themselves because God had already chosen a name and that was Shem. As one writer put it, there was no need for the misguided efforts of the Babelites to secure a name for themselves. Their security would rest in the offspring of the Shemite family as Noah had anticipated. And we're meant to see that irony in this genealogy that follows the accounts at Babel. Observation number four is the overlap of significant figures. If you look at verse 10, there's a helpful date that's given, and this gives us a fixed time. It says, these are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begat Afaxad two years after the flood. So we're told that Afaxad was born two years after the flood, and Shem was 100 at that time then when we do the math he died at 600 so he lived after the flood 500 years and what's interesting is that Noah lived for 350 years after the flood we're told that in Genesis 9 28 now why I mention those things is that if we follow this genealogy through Abraham Abram, so I'll try not to call him Abraham Abraham was born 292 to 320 years after the flood now, the reason why we can't be exactly sure is that just because Abram's listed first doesn't necessarily mean he was the firstborn. He occupies that place due to his pending prominence. And it does help us explain some other scriptures if we say he wasn't the firstborn. Okay, but I don't want to end up down that rabbit hole. But either way, what I want you to see is that Noah and Abraham were actually alive at the same time. Okay, they were contemporaries for a brief period. I often, think we don't think about that. We think Noah was ages ago, and then eventually Abraham. Come when we look at Shem, he actually lived when Abraham, Isaac, and even Jacob was alive. Okay, we have no idea whether they interacted, but it's certainly interesting. There is this overlap of significant figures. And this is actually quite important that men like Noah and Shem lived for so long because they were historic survivors of the flood. So providentially, the Lord ensured that they could be used to teach the veracity of the flood and they could also preach against the perils of wickedness. It's a pretty powerful illustration, isn't it? Well, there was this other time where I saw wickedness like this and they all got wiped out by a flood. I was there, I saw it. What's interesting in the New Testament, Noah's referred to as a preacher of righteousness. And usually we think of that pre-flood, but I can't see any reason why it should be restricted to being pre-flood. It seems he continued this as a post-flood ministry as well. So we see this overlap of significant figures. Observation number five is the decreasing ages of humanity. This genealogy enables us to determine the death of those who are listed. We need to add the two figures that are given in the verses. And if my math is right, these are the ages revealed here. So Shem 600, Afaxad 438, Salah 433, Ebar 464, Peleg 239, Ru 239, Sarug 230, Nahor 148 and what you will observe is that the ages are decreasing and this is especially evident when we remember that Noah lived to 950 Genesis 929 so how do we explain the dramatic decrease in the time lived especially when we arrive at today okay medicine has advanced in amazing ways And yet 100 is still regarded as very old today. So what's the explanation? Well, historically, this has often been explained environmentally. And the argument will go, the flood changed the environment in dramatic ways, which decreased life expectancy. And often people would talk about the removal of the vapour canopy as the suggested explanation. But I don't believe that's the best explanation no doubt the environment I think was certainly different and that had an impact but if the environment was the primary factor why did Noah live 350 years after the flood and why did Sham live 500 years after the flood so we need to look for another reason and I think the primary cause of the dramatic decrease is genetics so very simply the gene pool was dramatically altered with the flood Okay, you think about all of the genetic information that was, you know, to put it bluntly, drowned with the flood. And what we have is basically a genetic bottleneck. Okay, you've got Noah and his family. That's it. That's all of the genetic pool. And the effects of genetic mutations were aggravated due to the necessary close breeding. And this point is further proven because notice that Peleg dies at 239. Okay, there's another dramatic decrease we know that the tower of babel occurred in his life what happened at that point okay well people spread throughout the earth in smaller tribal groups again that is shrinking that is limiting the gene pool so i believe this is the primary cause sure environment likely played a factor but declining in lifetimes was primarily because of genetic causes And we can also explain the massive difference between the age of Noah and Shem genetically as well. We read elsewhere that Noah was 500 years old when he had his children. And even for that time, that was quite old. And we know today that older parents, there is greater potential for genetic issues. So that would be a logical explanation why Shem lived shorter without speculating about accidents or disease but there's also a theological point that we see okay it illustrates that mankind is feeling the impact of sin sin leads to death okay that's what the bible teaches and we see that death is coming sooner and sooner and this is always the consequence of sin sin leads to decay destruction and death nothing good comes from it and hence we shouldn't dabble in it and we desperately need someone to save us from it sin leads to death that's observation 5 observation 6 this reveals a change in focus now this genealogy concludes with abram who would later become abraham and in the book of in the book of narrative in the book of genesis he takes center stage because it's through his line that messiah would come what's interesting that the book of genesis covers around about two thousand years of history and yet it spends one third of its text on the life of one man abram okay abram or abraham is mentioned approximately 312 times in the bible he's arguably the most famous man in the old testament and one of the most influential figures of history and this particular genealogy brings us to this man. Okay, it was here where God would focus. Okay, so God has just spoken about all of these nations, but that's not where the focus will be. The focus is on Abram. And it's interesting that throughout the Old Testament, we hear very little about the nations except when they interact with Abram and his family. So this is the beginning of a new focus, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob take center stage in God's unfolding plan of redemption. And this genealogy reveals this shift in focus to us, and spoiler alert, our preaching focus will shift that way next week as well. So that's observation six. And observation seven, this is the genealogy of Jesus. This is why this list is such good news. Mankind has made a real mess of things, but God would still keep his promise that he would send a redeemer through the seed of the woman. He made that promise back in the Garden of Eden and he would keep that promise. If we were to look at Luke chapter 3, we see the genealogy from Genesis chapter 11 is there. This list of names recorded in our text is part of the family line of Jesus. Okay, Jesus would be the one who fixes the massive mess that's been made by mankind. Okay, This is the good news that comes out of this genealogy. This is the light that shines into the deep darkness. There is hope and that hope is a person and his name is Jesus. Okay, this is the good news of this genealogy. And what makes it particularly astonishing is that it's so undeserved. Now, throughout our study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have seen time and time again that man tries their best to ruin everything. But God keeps graciously intervening. Let's go right back to the start. Adam tried his best to ruin it all in the garden and yet God responded with the promise of the one who would come through the seed of the woman. Cain tried his best to ruin it by killing Abel but God graciously provided Seth. Mankind tried to ruin it all with their wickedness but God graciously saved Noah and his family from the watery judgments. Noah tried to ruin it all with his drunkenness along with Ham's sin but God graciously confirms his promise through the line of Shem. Mankind tries his best to ruin it at the Tower of Babel, but God graciously brings us to Abram. Okay, this is reoccurring, and we could trace this theme right throughout the Bible. Man continually makes a mess of things, but God in His grace keeps working toward accomplishing His plans and purposes. And doesn't that magnify the glory and the greatness of God? Doesn't that magnify His grace And his patience, it's astonishing. Mankind is so frustrating. Mankind is so wicked. We we continually mess it all up. And yet God continues to be faithful. He's so gracious. And he ensures that mankind doesn't ruin it all. Because he's committed to his planned purposes. And his promises despite the wickedness of man. And my friend, this is very good news for us that God's promises are dependent on his character and not our performance. God's promises are dependent on his character, not our performance. And there's nothing that mankind can do that will undermine the promises and purposes of God. And again, we see this right throughout the Old Testament. Mankind fails again and again. We get introduced to Israel, God's chosen people, and they fail again and again. God's kings fail. God's priests fail. God's prophets fail. There is so much unfaithfulness, and yet God stayed faithful to provide a savior. And he was the one who has never failed. And this is the message of this genealogy. This is why... It follows the Tower of Babel because it assures us that the Tower of Babel fiasco didn't undermine God's promise of the Savior. He's still committed to his promise because this is the family line of the coming Savior. And this proclaims to us that there's nothing that can thwart the promises and purposes of God. And for us today, because of Jesus Christ, it means that there's nothing that can undermine God's promise to finish the work of salvation. Nothing can thwart God's promise of a home in heaven for those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Okay, we see throughout the Old Testament that there was nothing that could thwart the coming of God's salvation. Jesus did come. Jesus is the one promised of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. He did live the perfect life. He never failed like everyone that had come before him. And he went to the cross. And there at the cross, he took the sin of mankind upon himself. God's wrath was unleashed upon him. That was the divine plan. And it came to pass. It was fulfilled. Jesus died. but Praise the Lord. He rose again and, made, and has made salvation possible. For all those who will repent of their sin, acknowledge and turn from it and believe that Jesus Christ is God and that he is the only way to save me from my sin. That was the plan and it happened. And I trust you know Jesus Christ is your savior, that that is the settled conviction of your hearts. If not, make today the day of your salvation. Come to him. But if you do know Christ, here's the encouragement. Just like nothing could thwart the coming plan of salvation, there is nothing that will thwart the completion of salvation for those in Christ. Even when we are unfaithful, even when we mess it all up, God's promises are not based on our performance. The completion of our salvation is not dependent on our faithfulness. And aren't you glad for that? Because I don't know about you, but I still struggle. I know I can make a mess of things. I sin far more than I'd like to. We can be just like Adam, like Noah, like the Tower of Babel. And yet God will keep his promises. Our unfaithfulness, our sin, doesn't eradicate God's promise to complete the work of salvation. Now, yes, that's not an excuse for unfaithfulness or a life of sin. I understand that. But it is a testament to God's amazing grace. Throughout history, he's always kept his promises. He ensured that the plan of redemption has continued to unfold. And he will finish the plan of redemption just like he promised. There's nothing we can do to thwart it. There's nothing anyone or anything can do to take that away. And aren't you glad? You know, aren't you glad that it's not possible for God to get to a point when he looks at mankind and he says, I've had enough. I'm sick of you guys. Thousands of years, you just keep messing it up. I'm so good to you, but you're so unfaithful back to me. I'm withdrawing the plan of salvation. No more. Doesn't apply. I'm no longer saving you. Aren't you glad that can never happen? Okay, it didn't happen at the the Tower of Babel. That's what this genealogy makes clear. God stuck to his promised plan, and my friend, it will be completed because it doesn't depend on our performance, but rather it's dependent on God's grace and faithfulness. That's the good and gracious news implied in this genealogy. God is committed to completing the work of redemption and nothing can stop it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you and praise you uh, for your word thank you for this uh, genealogy and for the for the good news uh, that it proclaims. The Lord, we're so grateful uh, for who you are and that the the completion of salvation is dependent on you and not uh, dependent on us. The Lord, I do pray that would uh, encourage us uh, in our Christian lives this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to close uh, with I know...